This is the Blossom of Thought podcast, a podcast about the body, mind, and soul. And your host is Impilo Kambule. The world is inundated with protests. People are on the streets seemingly fed up with governments. It seems the trust bank account between the people and the governments has dried up. It also appears that governments have given the people a bad check, which has come back marked insufficient funds, as Martin Luther King will say. Now people want changes, hence the protest. Joining me today to discuss such matters related to the kingdom of Swaziland, O.S. Swatini is Tulane Rudolf Masego, an experienced human rights lawyer with a passion for the rule of law. He holds a master's degree in human rights and democratization in Africa from the University of Pretoria, Center for Human Rights. He holds a Hubbard Humphrey Fellowship in Leadership from the American University Washington College of Law, where he obtained a master's degree in international legal studies. He holds a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Laws from the University of Swaziland. Tulane is a founding member of Lawyers for Human Rights Swaziland and has worked for the International Commission of Jurists, so ICJ, for several years as a consultant based in Swaziland. Mr. Mosego, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Welcome. Well, we appreciate to have you here and just update us on what has transpired in Swaziland for the past three or four weeks, with particular emphasis on the past uh, few days. Can you go ahead and give us just an abridgment of what has transpired? Oh, well, the, uh, for the past uh, three weeks or, or a month, you know, there have been unrest in this country, mentally because people transform from a, a one party or no party a monarch into a multi-party uh, de- democracy in Swaziland. And uh, these voices of change for a long time have been coming from outside the structures of government. In particular, they've been coming outside of the parliament. But uh, in recent times, there have been voices within parliament which have been calling for the uh, review of the powers of the king, his majesty, the king, Swadi III, in relation to the appointment of the prime minister. There's been a group of at least three MPs, uh, uh, one, Mr. Bakte Demabuza, working together with Mtuduzi Similane, and another Mtandeni Tube, and a couple of other MPs who remain in the background, you know, for the sake of uh, protecting themselves against the reprisals by the regime that may befall them in the call for democracy from within the House of, of Parliament in Swaziland. There have been also you know, protests arising from you know, the brutality and murder by citizens, uh, often by the police. In particular, there was a young student from the University of Swaziland who was murdered, Juan uh, Tabanin Komonye, who was killed by the police under very unclear circumstances. That is one issue also that has fueled the anger of the people. But fundamentally, all these efforts supplement and complement what has been a long-standing cry by the pro-democracy movement you know, in the form of uh, political parties, your labor unions, students, and the youth who have been calling for the you know, transformation of the country into a multi-party uh, dispensation under the rule of law. I understand that there have been a lot of people that have been murdered, about 75 or so, a lot of incarcerated. I think we'll talk about that later. And others have been maimed and disfigured in various ways. But I also understand that there is 
a regional grouping uh, in Southern Africa called the Southern African Development uh, Committee. And it's, it's got a defense and security wing called Trioka that has come to Swaziland to monitor the situation in a fact-finding mission. Can you tell us about that, uh, what has transpired in the past few days as they've come for that exercise? Yeah, that is absolutely, you will note that uh, the Kingdom of Swaziland, or Swatini if you like, is a member of what is called the Southern Africa Development Community, otherwise SADC. And then given the turmoil and the unrest of the last couple of days, it uh, became apparent, you know, on the SADC organ, you know, Troika, to make uh, a move with a view to intervene in the crisis. Uh, SADC, through the organ Troika, then sent, you know, a delegation of three ministers, one from Botswana, who is currently the chair of the organ Troika, with a member from uh, Zimbabwe, minister from Zimbabwe, and of course, a minister from South Africa, who came here, you know, to sort of study the situation that led to the unrest in, 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 in this country. Uh, they were unable to speak with the broad spectrum of the players. In this instance, your political parties, civil society, in their various uh, you know, forms and shape, but they, they were only able to speak with the organs of state in the first instance. It became apparent uh, when they came here that the time that they had was not enough to engage with all the role players in the crisis. They then went back with the promise that they would uh, either come back or in one fashion or the other to establish the causes or the cause of the unrest. I think a week after, the organ Troika then sent what is now called a technical team that was here uh, last week to then uh, meet with the various organs of the Swazi people to understand from their perspective as to the situation in the country. They wanted to know what people think were the causes or are the causes of the unrest and the turmoil in the country. And they wanted to know how people see uh, as a way forward to, to arrest the situation. Uh, we had the opportunity to meet with them uh, as the multi-stakeholders forum which is a group that uh, includes all the organs of uh, society in Swaziland, uh, whether they be political parties, the youth movement, uh, students, women, you know, and all other interest groups. We went there to present how we see the situation in, in this country. We made it clear when we had the chance to speak with them, as all, all, all others did, that fundamentally the problem here is uh, a political and governance problem. You will note that the the system of government here is what is called the Tingunda system of government, which is uh, hostile to all forms of free political activity, in particular the banning of political parties in the spaces for contesting the seat of government. Uh, we then said to them, if there has to be a way of finding a permanent solution to the crisis, there must be a process where all stakeholders have a say and have a stake in the governance of the country. We recommended that uh, they must impress on the leaders of the country to start a process that would be a dialogue in nature to negotiate the future of Swaziland. That process will mean your political parties, civil society, and the government sit down together 
on Ryan table to negotiate and uh, break the impasse that currently prevails in Swaziland. We were assured that our views and expressions will then be submitted to the principals of the technical team and uh, we were made to believe that SADAC will be meeting in Malawi uh, next month, August, where the report of the technical team through the Ogan Troika will be made available to the heads of state, I assume, for them to decide the issue and then craft a way forward in relation to Swaziland. I am usually pessimistic when it comes to international communities solving domestic problems. And I've seen in social media that people are yearning and are clamoring for international communities to come in quickly and quick and fast to help the Swazis because people are dying. Can you assure the Swazi people or the people in the world that this will be fruitful for the Swazi people? Yeah, we want to give this process a chance. Of course, there are those like you who are pessimistic, who look at the record of SADAC's intervention in the SADAC countries. People speak of uh, Zimbabwe, for instance, they speak of uh, Lesotho. They feel that uh, Madagascar, they feel that uh, SADAC was unable to find lasting solutions in those countries. We want to say this is the first time that uh, we in this country have the chance to be visited by an, by an organ of SADAC with a view to broker peace. So we, uh, we are faithful and we're hopeful that uh, the process will give results to a lasting solution. We have said that uh, SADAC should uh, appreciate that the collective pro-democracy movement has agreed that uh, in order for us to move forward as a country, you know, there are five fundamental principles that must, that must inform the way forward. First of all, we have said that uh, the government and his majesty, the king, must ensure that uh, a process of dialogue is inclusive of all the players in Swaziland. As a, as a fundamental point, we have said that, uh, secondly, the, there must be a commitment to the total unconditional unbending of political parties so that they have a clear stake in the process going forward. You will know that since 1973, the environment here has been hostile to the involvement of political parties in the government uh, of the country, though they remain you know, banned and uh, prohibited from engaging in the political discourse. We have said it's fundamental for the environment to be conducive for them to participate. We have then said, as the third point, we need to agree that you must consider the setting up of an interim you know, uh, government that will ensure that uh, the play field is level for all parties in the process. We have said as a fourth point, the process must give results to the adoption of a new democratic constitution for Swaziland. And number five, this constitution which shall be ad- adopted must ensure that uh, going forward, the country is governed under a multi-party dispensation grounded on the rule of law. Those are the five points that uh, commonly have been agreed by the pro-democracy movement in this country. I want us to move on in the interest of time and talk about the appointment of the new prime minister. There have been cries from the ground in Swaziland, as far as I understand, that the king has violated the constitution in the process of appointing the, the prime minister. Can you take us through that? Yes, uh, there have been those voices uh, that says that uh, in appointing the new prime minister, uh, who was a senator, Cleopas Lamini, the king uh, did not follow the constitution. There is some you know, uh, gray area in that, in that respect. 
you know, fundamentally because uh, there are those who argue that at the time of his appointment, he was a senator. Yet uh, the constituent said the person must be a member of the House of Assembly, which is the lower house. It appears, though, that uh, before his appointment as a prime minister, he was withdrawn from senator and appointed into the house. We are made to believe that uh, the team to appoint him into the house was taken the day before his appointment, which is the Thursday, the 15th. And we know that the king announced his appointment on Friday, the 16th. So there's, a, there's a, a, an issue there of contestation as to when exactly he was he appointed uh, as a member of the, of the house. Uh, but you, you will understand that the problem is fundamentally the way the, the very constitution uh, was crafted and the way it preserves the powers of the king as they were on the 12th of April 1973, meaning that he is a supreme authority. It appears that he's above the, the law itself. So that argument is, is, is an argument that will not take us anywhere. Whether or not the appointment is in terms of the constitution is neither here nor there. The issue here is that we have a constitution that, that is itself is unworkable insofar as advancing human rights, democracy, and the rule of voice consent. So that uh, the process that we're talking about is one that should say this uh, constitution has failed to deliver to the people a democratic dispensation. We must engage in one that will give us a truly democratic constitution guaranteeing democracy and the rule for in Swaziland. Just talking about the constitution and the powers that are given to the king and also the disputes that he has violated the constitution, is it an isolated event that the king has violated the constitution or there are in the past records where he has gone contrary to the constitution, hence the people who uh, are seeking for the changes? There have been various instances where it has been argued or suggested that uh, the king has failed to uphold his very own constitution. Uh, since it came into effect in 2005 and all the elections that uh, have been conducted under it, it appears that uh, there's never been a, a point in time where a prime minister was appointed in line with the, with the constitution. Uh, you will recall that uh, we have had at least three prime ministers, one of them uh, being the late Dr. Panabas Sibusiso Lamini, and the, the, the one after him being uh, Temba Absalom Lamini, who also happened to have been working very closely with the king in, in ensuring and guaranteeing the investments of his majesty. Then there's been this one who was appointed on the 16th of July this year. It appears that uh, none of them have been appointed strictly in line with Section 671 of the Constitution. Uh, uh, because uh, at all times, <laughs> they have never been uh, members of the House, properly so-called. You know, they've always been parachuted you know, by the king, you know, one way or the other. I think that's where the, the problem really lies. Uh, what type of a person uh, should the king appoint as prime minister, given section 67 one of the constitution? Uh, does the king have the right to parachute somebody into the House of Assembly and then appoint that person as prime minister? Or at the time of appointment, that person should be uh, a member of the House? Those, these are the questions which are very unclear in the very constitution itself. That creates a, a confusion. Hence, there are those who are saying to limit our struggle to be within the framework of the current uh, framework is a waste of time because fundamentally it is the framework that makes it difficult for people 
to exercise the fundamental rights to elect and then form a government as they see fit. So the debate whether or not there must be a review or an amendment of the constitution uh, is not one that we take us forward. The demand is that there must be you know, a process where there is a negotiation of a new constitution. This 2005 constitution appears to have failed, you know, as I've said, to guarantee democracy for the people of Swaziland. As we are speaking, talking about the king and also uh, the violation of the constitution, I'm looking at section two, you know, the king is duty bound to uphold and defend the constitution. Section 63, the king also as a number one citizen, as I take him, also has duties and obligation. One of it is to promote democracy and the rule of law. And I think from what you are saying, it doesn't appear that way. And section 64, subsection 2 takes it very far, or it's just precisely for him. The king shall, shall protect and defend this constitution and all laws made under or continue to, uh, to be enforced by this constitution. It appears to me there is this binary system. On the one hand, we've got all these duties that the king must uh, execute as far as the constitution is concerned. And then right in the midst of these duties, now we have got section 11, where the king cannot be taken to court in either in civil or criminal matters. He cannot appear as a witness, so as others will say, he's above the law. From a, a drafter's point of view, what form of drafting will this be, or what kind of intention uh, did the drafters have when, on the one hand, he's given duties, and you expect that legally, once there are duties uh, that are laid upon you as a citizen or anybody, any public officer, you expected that you should be taken into account if you fail to execute those duties. What's your comment on that? Well, the view that we take is that uh, in order to appreciate the content of this constitution, one must understand also the background uh, to its coming about. The history of its making is fundamental. Fundamental for the simple reason that uh, those who have been following uh, developments in this country, politically and constitutionally, will remember that uh, in 1996, if I'm right, the king established what was called the Constitutional Review Commission, uh, which came out with the various recommendations. But prior to it, there were other commissions which were set up by, by the king. And these commissions, you know, were not inclusive. They were appointed by the king. Many of the members there were members of the royal family. They were chiefs, you know, they were cronies who are close to the royal family. And what is fundamental is, is what they recommended. We need to remember that they recommended that the powers of the king, in order to be a new constitution, should remain the same. In other words, the position as it prevailed from April 12th, 1973 uh, to July 26, 2005, had to remain as they were, which means there was never an intention on the part of those who crafted this constitution to ensure that the king is subjected to a constitutional uh, dispensation. What they sought to do was to entrench a political situation uh, as created, you know, if you remember, in 1978, when the Tingunda system of government was introduced. And this fundamental uh, feature is that uh, it places the monarchy at the center of the political life of a Swazi, meaning that uh, everything that we do as Swazis is informed by the wishes and whims of the uh, monarchy, in particular the king. So the constitution on the one hand seeks to guarantee the rule of law. 
on the other hand, it uh, creates a supreme leader. And uh, these are very inconsistent values and principles. And I think the call for a new constitution is fundamentally because of the failure of this uh, so-called supreme law to ensure that the rule of law is the base of government uh, for Swaziland. You will also note that uh, the, the section 64, if I'm right, or 65, which mm-hmm. says the king shall exercise his executive powers on the advice of constitutional bodies. Mm-hmm. But it also says that uh, the king may, in his wisdom, not act in accordance with advice given to him. So that tells you that we have a document that was not intended to bind the head of state and government. It placed him far above the constitution. And this fundamentally the problem that we're faced with in Swaziland. There are so many uh, things that we can talk about as far as the constitution is concerned and the problems uh, from the point of view of the drafters. But now I, watch, I just want us to move on to the cries for amendment of the constitution. How does that look like? What is it exactly that, uh, that will be required to be changed as far as the constitution is concerned? People want to amend the constitution to allow the people to elect the prime minister directly. I think this is the voice that is coming from within parliament. The call that the prime minister must be elected directly by the people. Uh, that means that there must be an amendment of section 67, one of the constitution. Uh, but the, the implications of that, because uh, even if the people were to elect the prime minister directly, the, the powers will remain vested in the king. So for the people to merely elect a prime minister without fundamentally changing the structure of, of the organs of state is not going to give us democracy. Uh, because the prime minister is, is just is, is but one organ of, of government. There is also the courts and the judiciary. There is also the parliament. You know, so to elect a prime minister and place him in a, a framework where he doesn't command executive authority, or even if he does command that authority, the framework is such that you will be frustrated in the performance of the powers of, of premiership. What we rather would like to see is a situation where the election of government uh, is informed by the will of the people so that the focus is not just on the premiership. The focus should be on the organs of state and how we are going to create a government that will be responsive to the needs and the will of the people. A situation where parliament shall be autonomous to play its oversight role on the executive and other organs of state. That's what we need. We need a a situation where the supreme law will ensure that the independence of the judiciary and all other bodies is guaranteed. So these are the things that we say are fundamental for us to move forward. And uh, amending a small aspect of this constitution will not give results to a democracy. It may as well be that it will further complicate the situation in Swaziland. The king has given a speech during the appointment of the prime minister. And one of the things that I remember as I followed the, the events there is that the king said everything in Swaziland belongs to the king. In other words, it belongs to him. And I think you are rightly placed to deal with that from a human rights point of view. To me, it appears that this was a statement of saying uh, we are back into servitude or slavery, where people are viewed as a property. From a human rights point of view, what can you say about that statement? 
I think that statement is fundamental for one uh, main reason. You see, there is a concept in this in this country where it is said uh, the king holds uh, in trust for the Swazi nation, uh, but nobody has unpacked what it is meant that the king holds uh, trust for the people. For instance, we know that uh, all land in this country uh, is held by the king in trust for the Swazi people, which means that people don't own the land. Uh, because you you use the land at the pleasure of his majesty uh, who who governs or rules over it through his proxies uh, being the chiefs and uh, as you will know most of these chiefs are also members of the royal family in one way or the other and uh, we have seen in recent history how this king has removed otherwise lawfully and legitimately appointed chiefs to appoint his own brothers and cronies just so as to ensure that he he holds the grip on the people. So I think when he said that uh, everything in this country belongs to him, he's saying that with the fixation that uh, he believes indeed that he holds uh, not just the political power, but he also holds the wealth and the economy and the land, you know, for himself. And we as a people can only uh, exercise uh, some right over these assets only to the extent that he allows us to do so. Uh, fundamentally, you know, I think the that phrase also means that uh, even the government is his government. And anybody who is calling for some kind of a change um, in the governance he seeks to take away from him what he thinks belongs to him. And I think we have seen over the years how the, the prime ministers have, have tended to say when they refer to government, they say, your majesty's government or his majesty's government, meaning literally they serve you know, as government uh, at the command and pleasure of the king. In the literal sense, it is one thing to say the government is for the king. You know, in, in, in the sense that uh, it's a government that is created, of course, after a democratic dispensation, you know, recognizing that at the top of it is the head of state, the king. It is quite another to literally say that the government is government that belongs to the king and he can do as he pleases with those who serve in that government. I think uh, that tells you that uh, the king sees the country and its people and everything in it as a, this personal uh, property or, or personal items. And that is why, you know, they refer uh, to the citizens as a, a subject of, of, of his majesty. And subject in the literal sense that you are actually an object uh, who, who doesn't have fundamental rights and freedoms, even as they make, make us believe that the pillar of rights in the constitution is to give us our rights to be taken as human beings. So I think it's just a fallacy that we live in this society. Last but uh, definitely not least, you have in the past been critical of the judicial system in Swaziland, and uh, you have had uh, terrible experiences there. Amnesty International has even declared you a prisoner of conscience. How has the judicial system responded? Has it been fair enough to protest us? Of course, I remain, I remain critical of the independence of the judiciary in Swaziland. In as much as I remain critical, of the way that uh, the king governs or rules over the people. And uh, the approach of the critique on the judiciary is not based on uh, personal dislikes of those who are serving in this institution. 
it is fundamentally informed by the very creation of the judiciary under the constitution. You will note that the Judicial Service Commission, which is a board that should advise the king on the appointment of judges, is composed of members who are appointed by the king himself. That's one. That's the one difficulty. But more than that, the process of appointment of judges is in itself mired in confusion in that whilst the constitution attempted to call for an open, transparent, and competent process, there's never been a process where appointment of judges has been transparent or open or competitive. So many of us are compelled to take the view that in order for one to be elevated into the seat of a judge, you must be somebody who is uh, pliable to the system. If not, you don't stand a chance. And uh, we have an example, uh, a sad example, in the form of uh, one of our revered justices here, Justice Thomas Masugu, who many of us view as an independent, you know, objective thinker. But for his independence and uh, competence, he fell out of favor with the with the powers that be and uh, had to see himself being unlawfully and uh, sadly removed as a judge of the High Court of Swaziland. There's a few judges, though, who continue to uh, stand on the side of what is right as opposed to, you know, popping up an unjust system. So in your question, that speaks to the response to of the courts in the crisis. We have had to really struggle, you know, in the lo- in the lower courts, where many of the people who stand accused of uh, being part of the protesters, whom governors opted to call looters, have had to appear. We have had to deal with very hostile, you know, judicial officers who have refused to grant bail in the early days of the protest. They refused to grant bail to those who stood acu- stand accused of uh, being involved in the protest. Later on, when they opted to grant people bail, they made it so pro- prohibitive so that even if you are granted bail, you would not be able to pay the bail amount. You find that somebody who is accused of a, a minor offense of having looted an item worth maybe, you know, 40 rands, you know, would be made about to $2. pay about $2, would be made to pay a bail amount so exorbitant as if the person has committed a very grievous offense. That's on the one leg. On the second leg, people have had to be denied the fair trial rights in that many of them were compelled to plead guilty just so as to walk through the criminal justice system when they would have preferred not to plead guilty uh, because there was an element of agency that those who are said to be, you know, responsible, are dealt with, you know, in terms of the law, even if it meant compromising the very law that should guarantee them right to a fair trial. Uh, We have had then to approach the high court with a view to put pressure on the lower courts, you know, to apply the law as we understand it on fair trial rights. Now, the problem, as you know, is that uh, those lower courts were behaving in the manner that they did because, as we understand, there was an instruction uh, that they they deny people paid, that if they do give them paid, they must make it so expensive so that they wouldn't afford to pay uh, that paid. So what we see here is a compromise of the very independence of the judicial officers who were made to operate under a situation where the law did not matter. Mr. Masego, on your last point, the internet started having problems because we are having this on Zoom, so it started having glitches. Can you just repeat 
the compromise of the, uh, the judicial system just towards the end when we were speaking about how uh, people were denied bail or it was made so excessive so as to deny them bail. Yes, I was saying that we were made to believe. In fact, some of the judicial officers in the lower courts said in open court that uh, they had uh, been instructed not to admit people to bail. Uh, that's one. The second issue is that many of these matters where people were accused as looters in the unrest were then dedicated to specific judicial officers who appeared to be no-nonsense officers. Um, where they granted pay, they made it so expensive that the person would not afford that bill amount. And the intention was to ensure that those people had to do time in, in, in jail. Uh, so it became like a, a conviction before the conviction itself happened. That's on the one leg. On the second leg, we saw that uh, there was some agency on dealing with these uh, so-called looters, whom we call our clients, in the sense that uh, the prosecution and the police were quite keen in compelling them to plead guilty, you know, when they would have wanted, you know, to plead innocent and be taken through proper criminal trial. So there's a, quite a number of them who are languishing in jail because they were made to plead guilty and a hefty fine was imposed on them. A fine of not less than 2,000 rands. Maybe in your, you can convert that into US dollars and then see mm-hmm. how much money that becomes. Uh, for somebody who committed a very, who's alleged to have committed a very minor offense uh, in the looting. So what we have seen as a trend is that uh, people who were accused of a, uh, looting items of a small value were made to pay pay or a fine at a very high fee just so as to send a message that uh, the government and the police will use the courts you know to suppress and undermine the rights of the people of Swaziland. Mr. Maseo, thank you so much for coming through. I think we have been going on for quite some time. We appreciate your time. You know, you're a busy man and then doing a lot to help the people who are already incarcerated and many others. Thank you for coming through. Thank you very much. Thank you, my brother. Bye.